Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 14. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening. I say that because there are so many podcasts out there in existence, so many TV shows, so much music, and in reality, you could be doing any of that or none of that, but you choose to press play, you choose to subscribe, and to share, and it's truly honored, and I want to thank you. I say this often, but this episode is very special. I know I say that about almost every episode because a lot goes into them, but this one is especially special. I had in my heart to produce an episode in honor of Pride Month, and it, it's been a weird time as a member of the LGBTQ community, the alphabet soup community, as some would call us. I had a sense for a time that in our country, United States, that there was a growing bipartisan consensus that all people, all people, like all people, deserve equal protection under the law and that there if there was dissent to that the dissent was in a minority and that you know we're not going to intentionally create through legislation a two-tiered system of living in this country as it pertains to queer folk i believe this conversation is a layered one it's one we have often on this show in some areas but at the heart of the matter you know equality is the goal and what we're seeing today is the mobilization of the hand of the state to diminish, to discredit, and poison the reputation of a minority community by policy and by rhetoric. A community that has fought to be seen and recognized and has sacrificed. Are we perfect? No, we're human. But to be a part of the solution to honor Pride Month, a celebration of authenticity, of a time of enhanced advocacy, I wanted to present you two discussions that I thought paired very well together. The first is with entrepreneur and advocate Paul Butler, co-founder of the I Am Here Collective, a queer apparel brand with the mission of increasing LGBTQ visibility and empowering all members of the queer community to stand firm in who they are and share it with the world. In this first discussion, we're going to get to hear some of Paul's reflection on his own journey of queerness, the inception of I Am Here, and a look at some of the great work that they have championed across the country. I'll be back, but for now, let's dive in with Paul Butler. Okay, Paul, it is a pleasure to have you on BC's Corner, and it's so funny to me because this conversation is actually a year in the making. So last year for Pride, some of you know, uh, I was in partnership with my former employer, Simply B, and I had produced this event, Simply Proud, a networking event for queer individuals of color and executive level positions. And it was all inclusive for our company. So we were doing all queer guests on our podcast. We had like the big event happening. And for what you have done with I Am Here Collective, I wanted to be able to showcase that at this event. And ultimately, then it didn't work out. But we end up having this event hosted in West Loop, had hundreds of people there. And I planned to wear you know, that special shirt. And unfortunately, it didn't come in the mail in time. I was trying to get it like so early and you were being so great about it. And that didn't work out either. But I always say that, you know, 
whatever you're working on, whatever you're building, creating, doing, trying to achieve, it may not be for now, but it might be for later. So be careful how you move. And here we are a year later, and I get the privilege of highlighting your work as I acknowledge, you know, Pride Month. And when I think about Pride, like, it meant something very different for me five years ago, four years ago. Uh, I didn't come out until about three years ago. And so I wonder for you, Paul, you know, what did Pride mean to you then, juxtaposed with what Pride means to you now? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I completely forgot how little the time worked out last year, but I'm I'm so happy to be talking to you now. And I think in a much more realized place, I'm so happy with where I am here is at. So excited to talk with you about it. As far as what pride means to me in the past compared to what it does now, I think it was so much more, you know, surface level when I first came out. I think that there's an inexplicable period of time after someone comes out that they are, you know, all just like covered in rainbows, smile ear to ear, like just so happy to finally be living a life that feels more connected with their reality and what they've always felt. And I think it's such an exciting time. And I think it's really hard to replicate it again. It's almost like a honeymoon phase of coming out. But then when you've, you know, you've reached this period where you're a few years out, similar to your experience, things change. You know, when we see things happening in the media, it becomes more serious, we realized that it wasn't like the only step for us to make wasn't just coming out. We now have to stand for all the people along us and in some ways, unfortunately, behind us who need their voices uplifted. And it's a responsibility now, which I think is an honor. It's an honor for us. I think that the difference is just that the rose-colored glasses are gone and we're looking at it as our true reality and experience and it's not always as much of rainbow and sunshine as we would like it to be. Yeah. I said in the intro that I actually already recorded for this conversation, but 64 countries have laws criminalizing, criminalizing homosexuality and queer identity. And I think often the thought of pride for so many that are just now seeing it and not knowing that this has been something that has been happening since the Stonewall uprisings in 1969 that there is a continued work. It's not just the celebration, but it's the continued work for the queer person and even allies to challenge the complacency, to not just get stuck in your own liberation or self-realization, but to expand that understanding to others and continue to break those false views of reality that I really believe, you know, shatter the human spirit. And I wonder for you, because you started I Am Here, and we'll talk more about that, In 2016, when did you, Paul, give yourself permission to fully embrace who you were? My journey was less of a big announcement. Those were really popular back in the day. I don't see those too much now, probably because of my age group. Uh, But mine was less of like that big announcement. And it was more of a, I can show you better than I can tell you. Don't get too excited, guys. I just kind of like let go of that deeply ingrained idea I had of what I thought other people wanted me to be. And then I just started to discover who I was, what I liked, what gave me joy versus, you know, what protected me. What was that experience for you? I feel like I definitely remember all of the mass coming out posts. It it did feel like when I like after I had come out, I feel like I was seeing them on a regular basis by like the friends that I had gotten on, you know, Facebook at the time when Facebook was still 
still felt a little bit a little bit more relevant (laughs) but yeah no my my experience was similar in that way to yours i came out very quietly i think the reason i did so is because when i had decided that that was an action that i was ready to make i was so secure in who i was that i didn't need validation from other people and i know that that is different based on different people's circumstances there's no right or wrong way to come out but based on my experience it was important for me to tell the people that I was the closest with just because I just want to be my true self with them and I want to be transparent with them. Beyond that, I just kind of started living my life differently. And if people were going to be a part of that or not, they were able to make that choice from there. Unfortunately, living in places that were conservative, you know, you definitely would see people drop off. And that was a reality. And it's just not something that you, that I did or that I would recommend people to pay attention to. It's an interesting journey. The reason why I am here is so specifically important to me based on this topic of coming out is that the reason I decided to come out is because I started watching this TV show called The Following. Mm. It's about a serial killer. It's, yeah. nothing, it's nothing special of a show, but I watched it over the summer and there's a gay storyline. Maybe you're familiar in the show and It sounds silly to me now, but that was the storyline that made me feel like everything would be okay. Just the fact that I saw queer representation in the media in some capacity without me seeking it out was like the validation that I needed at that time to feel like it was okay for me to come out. I I feel like now I'm, you know, constantly seeing signals of that representation and, and hopefully it is a lot better for younger generations, but. I know how simple it was for me to see that one single thing. And I wanted to replicate that. I wanted to make sure that that we, as a community, after we come out, don't forget how important it is to show anyone who's struggling with the coming out process that there is a life on the other side. It's not always perfect. It's not always sunshine and rainbows. But there is a community out there waiting for you to be welcomed. And the, you, you mentioned a bit about the role of geography. And I was going to ask about that being in a conservative area myself. And when we say conservative, I think politics plays a bit of a role in that, but it's kind of that, and you can feel free to add some input here, but kind of the realm of those Judeo-Christian values of which like you marry a woman, like that is like, there's heteronormativity, like there is no homosexuality, like that is the way that you're supposed to go. And being socialized into something that is genetically not for you, and not speaking into who you are uniquely as an individual, it's a lot more destructive than I think people realize and a lot more confusing for individuals too. And I was thinking in preparation for this conversation, yeah, there's the blessing of the internet now and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But then like, I was thinking about it. I was like, maybe those aren't actually the best places either. And to realize, you know, for those of you listening who are in those smaller communities, how can you create a safer space for those individuals to be able to just have a conversation and know that they're not alone. Uh, And I think what you mentioned in media is so important because I was watching uh, Queen Charlotte, the new Bridgerton story, and there's even a queer storyline in that. Like, there's always a queer storyline these days, but that wasn't the norm. But you then came out of this community, you grew, and then something you said that I really loved is you aim to grow others, to nourish, to encourage them on their paths of finding community and belonging. And you and your friend, Allie, you then found the I Am Here Collective. And I love this brand, not just because the shirts look awesome and the apparel is awesome, 
but your mission is visibility. Uh, you seek to empower all members of the LGBTQ plus community to stand firm in not just who they are, but to share it with the world. And what I loved so much about this brand is you also donate 10% of the profits to LGBTQ plus organizations and making a difference really on a local level. And you've been around since 2016 doing this. It's been seven years. What has surprised you about the evolution of I Am Here? Speak more to that. Definitely. What has surprised me the most about the evolution of I Am Here is that it has constantly been needed and there has constantly been a hunger for this type of representation and a brand that stands for the mission of visibility within the LGBTQ plus community. I think there's been several times where I've had a bit of a moment where I've, I've stepped back and I've wondered if it made sense for me to continue with the same mission. You know, I live in Chicago. I feel like I'm constantly surrounded by people who have similar values and interests and everything else is me. And I think that that is a blessing and a curse in some ways. It's, it's such a blessing to finally be in a place where I can seek out and be surrounded by people like that. But it's a curse because it kind of makes us forget where we come from and also all the places in the world that don't necessarily have that to offer their citizens. So I think that that's been a huge reality check for me and a reminder that it's hugely important to continue to enhance the mission of visibility in a community. When we first started I Am Here, I remember how simple I wanted the message. I wanted the message to be, I am here. With a, had a rainbow. We had a rainbow on our first shirt, similar to how we do now. The back of the shirt said, you can come out to me. Very simple messaging. But I just remember at that time, I just wanted to feel like there was a single person out there that was just like a beacon of hope on the other side, whether it was an ally, whether it was a member of the community. I had such little insight into that. When we first started, it was much more focused on the actual coming out process. And since then, it has evolved into having a pillar of a, an empathetic mindset, instilling an empathetic mindset in people that are oppressing the, the movements of our community. You know, that includes ensuring that people that maybe aren't supportive of the initiatives or the rights of LGBTQ plus people are aware that there are those people all around them in their community. They are their neighbors, their local business owners, their barbers, you know, anyone else in their community that would potentially. And so when you started I Am Here, you were in North Dakota, correct? I was, yep. When did you move to Chicago? I moved to Chicago a few years ago, and it was a huge shift for me. I've lived in several mid-sized cities. Um, I grew up in Utah. And I went to college in North Dakota. So arguably in different ways, I feel like those are both extremely conservative states. And you're absolutely right on the money as far as religious influence over that, unfortunately. You know, I think that there's a lot that comes with that. Unfortunately, that mindset also uplifts the concept of the importance of masculinity for men. Yeah, uh, I remember, you know, my dad talking about how important it was for men to have facial hair and to not wear jewelry. And there were just all these like little things that he basically wanted to drill in my head that I could never do or act like or whatever that might be. And that's just how it felt. That's how it felt all the time in every situation growing up. So, you know, there was no chance that you would ever think that who you are is who you should be. 
And I, I had a very similar experience to that where it was down to like the kind of deodorant and soap I would use. Like it was, mm. it was kind of insane. Now, like every time I get into an Uber or I walk in somewhere, people like hug me, they're always like, you smell so good. And a secret of mine is I actually wear women's perfume and it just works with like my natural scent and it smells really good. And growing up, I used to get so much crap for it. And I also like, I love my jewelry. That's also like another piece of me that I got to discover in ways that you Mm -hmm. get to express yourself that maybe, you know, weren't open to you because of the way that you were socialized. And I think it's so cool to see how I am here has grown as you have grown and its message has evolved as you've also grown and evolved. And I asked that question about, you know, where you started in 2016, because the national conversation here in the United States specifically around queerness has evolved so much. And I'm not just talking about on a surface rhetoric level, but also in policy. So in 2015, you know, we have Obergefell v. Hodges ruling that, you know, same-sex marriage is legal. And again, you know, that's a Supreme Court ruling, not a congressional consensus on the national level. Uh, That didn't come until a few months ago in 2022 with the Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, And then, you know, this happened a few days ago, uh, but the FDA FDA has eased their ban on blood donations from non-heterosexual people. And so as we've seen homosexually become more normalized, the conversation around transgenderism and trans normalization has become incredibly divisive and harmful and not too much based in fact, but based really in fear. The GOP, I look back in 2016, you know, they had a queer man speak at their, you know, convention. You know, that was Donald Trump's convention. Like, they, it seemed like that was no longer going to be an issue. Uh, but here in 2023, there is heightened antagonism uh, and the rhetoric and even the policy. I was just reading about uh, this happened literally a day ago. But the teacher in Florida who showed, I forgot the name of the movie, but showed it to her class. And because it had a queer relationship, she's now looking to be fired. And I find that to be such a a weird conundrum of where we're sitting as a community, but also really, you know, the importance of your work. And so someone was actually speaking to me this past weekend because there's so many different layered issues within a community. Uh, and they were talking to me about Boys Town in Chicago, and you had mentioned how it was a different transition for you. And they said to me, they're like, oh, Boys Town is so diverse. And I looked over them and I was like, is it? And I wanted to ask you, you know, as you've grown and you've built community, how have you tackled, you know, the idea, the reality of white dominance within the queer community? That's a great question. And it's an interesting point to claim that Boys Town as a whole is an extremely (laughs) diverse place. I definitely would not express a blanket statement like that. I like to think there's certain establishments that are more um, racially and, and gender diverse, but some are definitely not. I think that that's definitely been an important journey of mine coming from Utah and North Dakota. There is like the absolute antithesis of diversity in places like that. So anything being here feels like it's diverse, which is, I think, a lot of the sentiment that people have, you know, coming to Chicago, being from the Midwest. In reality, there is still a lot more uh, improvement there that is needed. I don't know what your opinion is on this, but when I think of, of places that you know, really feel like they're inclusive and that you can truly be yourself at as far as queer establishments. In Chicago, we have a bar called Berlin. I feel like for me personally, I don't know how that feels to other people, but for me personally, that's the first bar 
I genuinely think I've ever walked in where I felt like you could be wearing anything, look like anything, be anyone, and it's okay, and it doesn't matter, and it's not a place to be seen. It's a place to be. It's a place to be who you are. Right. And I wish there were more places like that because that's how that place feels to me. I think, unfortunately, you know, when those rose-colored glasses are removed and you're a few or several years out of, of coming out, you realize that there are all different layers of the queer experience that you would have never expected. Like you don't expect the severity of everyone else's queer trauma in one place, in one establishment at one time and how that impacts the way that they treat you, the way that they treat themselves, the actions that they take otherwise. So you become more, as you said before, empathetic understanding. Like I've found that I'm way less judgmental, far less judgmental than I was before before it's yep. like where you looked at me a certain way you like I would be like projecting and I'm like you don't know what they're like what's going on in their head like you have no idea the demons that they're battling and I Absolutely. think that's given me like a lot of like it's made life easier to be completely honest and when you talk about Berlin it is that establishment I had some folks come in from out of town and I they had never been in the neighborhood so I gave them the tour and I don't usually go out that often these days I showed them everything I should have taken them to Berlin and I did not but that's the place where people ask me about it. And I'm like, if you wanted to dress up as Ivan Ooze from Power Rangers or as a Power Ranger, you could walk in and like, it's completely fine and completely chill. And I've always had a good time there. I love that bar. It's so great. <laughs> I love this. So then going back to I Am Here and, and winding this down. So 10%, as I mentioned, of the profits from I Am Here they go directly to queer-focused nonprofits. So including, you know, in the past, Black Tide Dinner, which is focused on, you know, young queer development and community building in North Texas. You then have the University of North Dakota Pride Center. Uh, you've also donated to the Sweet Falls Pride, just to name a few of those. And so as you look future forward, and even looking back a bit, you know, how have you seen the profits of I Am Here make a tangible difference in the lives of, of local queer communities and what do you hope for the future? You know, visibility is our core tenant, our guiding principle, because that is what I felt was the most important mission for me when I was coming out. And since then, since I've seen the need for our community to be front and center, top of mind for everyone, but in a good way, in a way that you can see and show empathy towards. But beyond that, I saw that we were able to see an impact beyond this by raising money to other organizations that had goals on a local level. A local level is really important to me. And when I say that, you know, I mean that there are small nonprofits in these rural and smaller, you know, cities and towns that I think need the support more than these national organizations, just because they are on the ground doing the work in their communities, showing up for people around them in the way that I view as the most essential. So that's why for example, when we made a donation to my university's Pride Center, it was because we did not have a Pride Center when I went to school there. We were getting one, and we wanted to make sure that when it was started up, it was successful and would have a functioning place for students to go and it to be a beacon of hope to anyone who maybe had just stepped foot on campus as a freshman, figuring out who they were in college, as we all do. And I have just loved seeing the kind of impact that we can make like that in other organizations so that it doesn't just stop at what we do, what we care about, and what we think is important for our mission and the community as a result. I love this. 
Paul, I want to thank you for for coming on. I'm super excited for not just the future of the I Am Here Collective, but your future as well. I think the world is a much better place with people like you in it, especially as thoughtful as you are. Paul's story is not unlike many of ours. Some of the issues hinted at in our discussion, I wanted to dive deeper into with a subject matter expert. Joining me for the second half of this episode is friend of the show from episode four, Eric Wilkerson. Eric serves as the Managing Director of Development for City Year Chicago and is the founder and principal of Wilkerson & Company, an organization that supports the fundraising strategies and development of small to mid-sized advocacy, policy, human rights, and political organizations throughout the country. For this new discussion, let's welcome back friend of the show, Eric Wilkerson. start, I know so much of your journey as a queer man, and I have had the question asked and answered of what did pride mean to me then, and then what does pride mean to me now? So I ask you, what does pride mean to you now, juxtapose with what pride meant to you then in your former life? You know, I don't know that I've ever been ask that question. And I think for me and a lot of people, that's a pretty interesting question and a thought-provoking question. So 10 years ago, so I'll give a little context. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, if I thought I'd be living in one of the world's biggest cities surrounded by queer people and actively engaged in the LGBTQ community, I would have laughed. I would have said, that's not my life. I was fresh out of the closet and living in the South. And that's, that's what I knew my life to be. So to answer your question, they're very different answers. 10 years ago, pride was foreign to me. Pride was not on my mind. I didn't know what it was. It was not a part of my life because it was foreign. Today, my life is very much centered around that word and centered around what we are doing in the month of June. And many of us are celebrating, many of us are mourning, many of us are excited, and many of us are scared during the month of Pride. And that largely depends on the world around us and what's happening around us. So I think that's how I'd answer the question. Looking at where we are in Pride, you mentioned that, but what is the message of Pride 2023? I think that the message of Pride in 2023 is different than it was when marriage equality uh, happened. And I think pride this year is more of a fight again. I think I'm going to use the word fight. And that's so unfortunate because queer people have been fighting for years and years and years, long before you and I even existed. But you and I have witnessed the society that we live in grow with us and, and bring us on their journey and now we are seeing, seeing that a little differently. I think it's hundreds, maybe 500 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced to legislators all across the country over the past year. And that is devastating. And it's devastating, yes, from like a policy perspective. But think about the millions of people that want to erase queer people through legislation. And I think that's what's so devastating. 
So it's hard to think about pride as a celebration for me anyway, this year, because of the hate that is being exposed all around us uh, over the past year. And that being said, during the month of pride, we can celebrate ourselves as human beings. We can celebrate our communities. We can celebrate our brothers and sisters and our siblings and can celebrate the progress we have made. We can celebrate the small wins. I just now saw, and this is not a small win. I should not say that this is a small win, but we can celebrate the legislator in Louisiana that just voted against a ban on gender-affirming care. We can celebrate the filibuster that took place in Nebraska. We can celebrate these wins and also let our allies and our advocates know that we're under attack and we need their support. So in 2015, we have Obergefell, which legalized same-sex marriage nationally. Then in 2022, we have a big milestone, in my opinion, because we have legislation that passes through Congress that affirms same-sex marriages. And some would say, you did it. That was the goal. You accomplished the goal. A lot of the legislation that we're seeing now is more about parental rights when it comes to their kids' development and and what they should be hearing in school. When is it age appropriate? What would you say to them when they say that you've accomplished your goal? What now? Yeah, what a phenomenal question. I was actually at the White House for the Respect for Marriage Act signing last year, and that was a very emotional moment. You and I may have talked a little bit about this, but it was emotional because I was surrounded by people who've been in this fight for years. It was uh, wonderful to be present to watch President Biden sign this. To your question, I think that while that was a milestone, while that was a victory for the LGBTQ plus community, while I appreciate the sentiment that, you know, we've won or we've got it all, I would just ask anyone who is questioning that or thinking that we do have it all, I'd ask them just to watch the news and ask them to just pay attention to what's happening around them because just because our country made a decision to uh, make marriage equality the law of the land doesn't mean that our country accepts LGBTQ people for who we are and how we exist. And that's the unfortunate disconnect. And I don't know that in my lifetime, I'm 38 years old, I don't know that in my lifetime, I'll ever be able to witness, you know, equity for LGBTQ people or full acceptance for LGBTQ people. Can you define equity for LGBTQ people? What does that look like? Yeah, equity for LGBTQ people. For me, what that looks like is a world where we're not fighting. It's a world where we're not fighting to exist. Equity for LGBTQ people is a world where we don't have to worry about walking down the street and holding our partner's hand. I don't have to worry about looking around me to understand the people around me to make sure I'm in a safe space. I don't have to worry about being, air quote, less gay on an airplane or in a different part of the country because I'm fearful that if I'm perceived gay, I could be attacked verbally or physically. That will not happen in my lifetime. And and I'm okay with that. But I think that our allies need to understand that. Our allies need to know that right now we are under attack and we need allyship right now more than ever before. Otherwise, I'm nervous about where we're going to be as a country and as a society in five and 10 and 20 years from now. 
And I think what we also face is the competing narratives. You mentioned watching the news. And while I think the news is helpful in some instances, we also see the sensationalized narratives that don't puncture facts, but they puncture feelings. And don't get me wrong, I'm a feeler. I think feelings have their place. But I sometimes think that the logic carries a bit more weight than some of the spin we put on things. Some of our allies or would-be allies would say, you know, there was a lot of heat around the don't say gay bill, which was actually not called the don't say gay bill. It was called like the Parental Rights and Education Act. And their thing about that is that it actually doesn't say gay in the bill. Well, if you actually read the bill, and I did, it's only about six pages, they do specifically mention, you know, teachings about sexual identity and gender identity in classroom discussions. If I were to challenge that, there was no definition given of classroom discussions. So you can take that how you how you want it. But then when you mention, you know, conservative leaning states, because we often hear that we're still in a fight and people may take that point that you just said and view it as sensational like Lism. But if you look at Alabama, out of the entire state, Pew Research, 41% say that homosexuality should be accepted. 52% say that it should be discouraged. And, and that varies by state. You go to a Connecticut, 76% are for, 19% are against. If you go to Mississippi, 40% are for, you know, 54% are against. So we've won in a sense, but how does that reflect on generations to come? Like, what do we want to see in education? What do we want to see that allows those queer individuals growing up to have different experiences than you or I did? What is the sane way or way to communicate that, that it could actually change minds and change hearts? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I have a couple of reactions. One is knowledge is power. And the more we know, the better informed our decisions are. So that's why history is important. Understanding and teaching LGBTQ history is important because regardless of a ban um, on a book or a discussion about queer people in the classroom, queer people will still exist. So I think it is better to allow queer people to learn about themselves and know about their existence in the classroom. I also I go back to knowledge is power. 70% of Americans have not knowingly met a trans person. That's alarming, right? Because when you have such a large population that doesn't know or doesn't know that they know a trans person, that creates a, a barrier, a lack of understanding often. So you've got 70% of Americans who don't understand, don't know and don't understand the trans experience. And then while they don't have that understanding, they're watching the news and they're seeing the bills that are being passed. That helps deepen their lack of understanding. That lack of understanding can really quickly turn into discrimination. That discrimination can really quickly fuel into anger. And then that anger drives a really sad and unfortunate narrative that is very harmful to the uh, thousands of trans people that live across the country. So knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And history is so important. And putting it in the context of our country, and so I want to preface this by saying, because we've talked about this on the show before, I love trans people. I want them to have full, unlimited lives here in the country. And it hurts me to see them used as pawns and not viewed as people. People who 
are seeking to live their best life, their preferred life in a healthy way. So that's about 1.6 of the U.S. population. And I wanted to discuss or, or bring up to you, however, a lot of people, and I've had these conversations a lot leading up to this conversation, they consider themselves allies. They consider themselves advocates of the queer community. I say queer often because it's an umbrella term that includes everybody. And so they have trouble, though, conceptualizing the big tent in that we talk about gender identity, which is, you know, pronouns, which is trans identity. But then we have sexual identity, which is like a homosexual, a lesbian, a gay, a bi experience. And they find them to be two completely different issues within the tent, but different issues. So how do we view, how do you view the relation, but then also the conflation of these two very different things that are still within the tent of queer liberation, but it's not landing on the people that matter most? Yeah, that's a big question. And I would imagine that I don't have the perfect answer for this. And I imagine that anybody you ask that question to, or I ask that question to, will have a uh, a different uh, and unique answer. I think that, yes, sexual orientation and gender identity are separate issues. However, I do think it's important that we recognize LGBTQ people within that tent because of the word allyship. I think that at the very end of the day, gay folks have made a lot of progress in the world. And society has slowly, over a period of time, become more accepting of gay people. Not LGBTQ people, but gay people. I think there's a deep lack of understanding with uh, bisexual people, queer people, and uh, gender nonconforming people, trans people. And I go back to knowledge is power. And uh, because gay people are so deeply connected to trans and non-binary folks within the tent, and we gay people have made more progress in society, we can have and should keep being the best allies possible and the best advocates possible for TGNC people. Uh, TGNC meaning trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Uh, so I think that the tent, the LGBTQ or the queer tent, is important largely to help continue progress. I hear you. So then you're saying they are two separate issues, but you're saying that they should not be left behind. Correct. So I was reading today about what happened with Target. I found the whole Bud Light thing to just be ridiculous, and I really don't want to talk about it, but we can. I was reading about the whole Target issue. And so Target had a series of pride apparel items that were located at the front of the store, on the floor of the store. And they, they typically have had great products, I will say. I did a whole little reel, and it got a lot of traction last year because they caught me with the queer magic candle, and it smelled so good. Uh, I was looking for them the other day because I was like, I'm gonna buy it, but maybe not now. But they had some items that drew controversy. There was a messenger bag that said, we belong here, a tote bag that said, too queer for here. And then they had a thing that said, a cure transphobia, not trans people sweatshirt. And so those items were pulled from the stores and the website, along with a prominently displayed adult swimsuit that was tuck friendly. And I didn't think anything of this, but then I got, I saw the growing backlash. And I think it's to your point of uh, including trans people within queer identity 
and how that is rocking the boat a little bit for some. I think some, and, and these, this is happening mostly in the South, but to see a company that large, you know, pull those things, pride has been monetized, okay? In your view, is this helping the cause or is this hurting the cause? Yeah, so I think that here's the way I look at this. Let's imagine two different people. One person, um, we'll say just a cisgender, a straight dude walking in Target and sees pride apparel, sees the word transgender on a shirt. So then let's think about a trans person, not at Target, but watching the news and learning that one of the largest corporations in the world is removing uh, and erasing a pride apparel and the word transgender from their store. Who is most harmed here? Is it the straight guy or the straight girl walking through the store who sees a rainbow on a shirt? Or is it the trans person on the sideline watching the news, listening to states and politicians all across our country and the globe debating their existence while Fortune 500 companies are erasing their identities from their store? Who is harmed here? (laughs) One person is harmed, the other is not. And if I were Target, I would say I'm here to be profitable, not sincere. So where do corporations, where should they exist in pride? Because they've gotten, they, they will take advantage of the dollar. They take advantage of the celebration. Walmart even had Juneteenth flavored ice cream last year. I wonder what that tastes like. But what's the dance with those relationships? Because I've had yeah. events, you spoke at one of the events that I, I helped produce. And like we had, we had corporate sponsors, sponsors right. who were glad to come and had promotions for Pride Month. But at the end of the day, they're, they're meant to turn a profit, you know? I think this is an important question. And I think there's one answer. And the answer is pick a lane. A <laughs> And stay, pick a lane and stay in it. You either support queer people, trans people, LGBTQ people, or you don't. You either show up at Pride or you don't. You either carry apparel or you don't. You either premiere your Bud Light beverage with a trans person or you don't. Pick a lane and stick to it. And that is all we need to know is queer people. I just think it's way more simple. I think it's that simple. I think so, too. I wrote off both things as nonsense. And then I actually got on the phone with someone I care about deeply and talked about the Target thing. And they told me what they would have done is they would have never sold the swimsuit in the stores. My mouth hit the floor. I was like, so we're essentially erasing. I was like, if if we're going to sell it online but not have it in the stores, then they were saying that it's such a small portion of the population, like the likelihood that anyone's going to even like buy it in bulk is like ridiculous. And so I think it goes to the, the conversation about erasure. But I also think there's an element of communication here. So for some, there is growing mistrust of organizations who contribute their legitimacy. We're going to talk about nonprofits in a minute. But they create certain narratives and they've done good work. They do good work. But the narratives they have are hurtful to the national discourse, to us as individuals, more than they are helpful. I've jokingly said for the last few years, uh, when I see, you know, gay people going to Florida, I'm like, why are y'all going there? They don't like us. But now you've seen where there are official travel advisories for a state like that. And my question is, one, is that really warranted? And two, what is the alternative if not? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think that there are LGBTQ people who questioned the advisor. I think there are straight people 
who dismissed the advisory. And I think that, I think let's all like take a step back and look at what this advisory means. And it is a caution. It is just cautioning that there is anti-LGBTQ rhetoric happening. There is uh, LGBTQ aggression um, happening. There are verbal and physical attacks happening left and right more and more in the state of Florida. That's all. So out of all 50 states in the United States of America, this particular state is more aggressive and is continuing down a more aggressive pattern towards LGBTQ people, creating unsafe places you know, for LGBTQ people. So that's all it is. It's just an advisory. It's not saying that Florida is the worst place in the world. It's not saying, you know, oh, don't come to Florida. But the LGBT, the experts in the state are saying, guys, be careful when you come here because things are a little different today than they were a few years ago. And it's not slowing up. Is the aggressor the public or the government? It's a combination. And they feed off of each other's anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, unfortunately. So I shared this opinion uh, on my episode with Connor Moore. It's my explicit opinion, if any of you are wondering where I stand. And I talked about how governments are elected. Ron DeSantis ran for governor in Florida the first time, barely won. The second time now in 2022, won by 19 percentage points, has a legislature, has essentially a mandate to govern. There's a lot of outrage and shock when he executes policies that the people there in that state voted for, for him to enact. So I, I lose sometimes the a bit of the churn or the frustration around seeing those policies enacted in a place where the people had agency to vote and did vote. If that happened in Chicago, where I pay taxes and where I'm a contributing member of society, I think my fire is a lot different. So when we talk about the bills that are passed across the country, is it really legitimate to be worried that in those like we're all moving to big cities anyways, we're mostly in metropolitan areas in the first place. Like, is it right for us to have outrage that people who are lacking representation because most of us don't live in those communities and aren't really showing, you know, a thriving queer representation are going in a more anti-queer path. Yes, we should be outraged and we should be outraged because regardless of the geography, regardless of geography, we are human beings and people are debating our existence. That makes me feel angry. I'm outraged that Someone can say, I don't believe in gay people. You are a sinner. And that is just a continual narrative in all of our lives. And that outrages me. And knowing that like our existence is being debated on floors across the country, it's frustrating. You know, it's just someone who has been hearing the narrative my entire life and someone who's just hoping to exist with my partner and my two dogs. It's really frustrating. But should the frustration also be coupled with, I mean, there has to be some form of evangelism that happens in those communities where the representation is lacking. Like, I think that there's a lacking in that. And I think there's education and there's room for that. But it's like we're, we're asking people in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to have the mindset of someone in a Chicago or New York or a Connecticut or a New Hampshire. And that seems a bit far fetched. Well, I don't think that I'm asking anyone to share a far-fetched mindset. I don't think it's far-fetched to look at me, a gay man, you, a gay man, and say, you don't exist. I just disagree with that narrative. I disagree that, that uh, with the narrative that is floating around in these state legislators and with our elected officials and our public. But 
the narrative that, you know, trans people are pedophiles, gay people are pedophiles, gay adults are grooming young children to be gay. Like I, I, I just doing a great job of that. They don't need it. Precisely. <laughs> so I, I actually don't think it's far-fetched. I think it's mandatory that we honestly fight for our existence and that we do show up in the spaces where we show up in a way that, that we, that feels good and meaningful um, for us. And I hope that the good people, the well-intended people of states like Florida can take a step back and listen to LGBTQ people and recognize our humanity and meet us where we are. I think it's their responsibility. It's not ours. Would you say Florida then needs, and and a lot of these places that are leaning on on more of the side on that pendulum of more of like a 45% not agreeing and, and think that homosexuality should be discouraged versus, you know, a place like Chicago, Illinois, which is much more liberal. Should we be seeing more of a, a gay migration to Florida and Arkansas and Alabama or Mississippi versus a gay exodus? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I will tell you, and I, <laughs> I don't have a great answer, but I do have an experience I can share. I'm born and raised in Arkansas, as you know, and um, maybe some of your viewers uh, remember And I am proud of where I'm from. I'm proud of the natural state. It is a gorgeous state, if you haven't been. And I was really torn about leaving uh, Arkansas and moving to Chicago. I was torn because I recognized the impact of my representation just as a gay man in Arkansas, um, in the business community in Little Rock. I recognized what that meant for other LGBTQ people. And I recognize what that meant for people who are not LGBTQ and the visibility and, you know, the questions I I was asked, you know, when I came out in the business community, the, the people who wanted to understand me was so inspiring. The amount of people that shared with me, um, you're coming out, helped me understand gay people um, in a different way or helped me see gay people in a different way was wonderful. So to your question, you know, should we migrate to these states? I don't have that answer, but I do know I struggled to leave because I know the value of representation in communities where there's less representation. You almost said, you know, y'all can go, but I'm going to stay right here. That's what you said. (laughs) I know I I live in a little blue bubble up here, but I'm saying you're able to bloom here. Like I was able to bloom here. Like when I came to Chicago, it was like my life just opened up and I don't think I would have been able to have that amount of liberty anywhere else. In closing, you know, you're a professional in the nonprofit fundraising space specifically. Where are our dollars best used? What are the best organizations to donate to in order to see some action, some support, specifically in these smaller towns and in these communities where we may not live, but we want to see the work. So I want to borrow the word representation. That has been a word in this entire segment, and I really appreciate that. And um, representation is so important. Um, Some will tell you to watch out for identity politics and don't elect someone just because they're gay. And I don't disagree with that, right? I don't think Thank you. Exactly. I don't think you should elect someone just because they're gay, but I do think that you should elect someone based on their experiences in this life, the skills that they bring to the table. And oftentimes that experience is a gay experience and a trans experience, black gay experience, a black trans experience. And when black 
trans people are holding positions of power, everybody else is protected and taken care of because you've got the most marginalized person holding the position of power. So I say that because I think Victory Fund, which in full transparency, I'm on their board. I'm deeply invested in this organization because I believe in the power of their mission, which is simply to help elect LGBTQ people into public office. So representation matters. Having LGBTQ people holding positions of power matters for so many different reasons. It impacts bills that are going through legislators around the country. And it also demonstrates to young people, young aspiring leaders that who might or may not be LGBTQ, that they can be in positions of power someday, in elected positions of power, so that the people will elect LGBTQ folks public office. So I think that Victory Fund is um, a really good organization to support. I also want to call in the Gender Cool Project. It's Pride Month, and the Gender Cool Project is doing some really unique work with young trans and gender non-conforming individuals around the country. It's headquartered here in Highland Park, Illinois, but they are doing some incredible work around the country. And as a matter of fact, you'll see the Gender Cool Project featured on Hulu on June 1st, I believe, kicking off Pride Month. And I would encourage checking that out. Um, I don't know all the details, but I would certainly encourage checking that out, going to their website, also going to Victory Fund's website, um, very different organizations doing different work, but under that LGBTQ tent um, that I think is really important. Eric, I want to thank you for coming on the show, having riveting discussion, and also giving us some of your expertise. You are truly, in the sense of a word, uh, a leader in the work of queer liberation. And so I honor you. Oh, well, I am deeply grateful to be here and I appreciate your kind words. And I want to say happy Pride Month. I know that for me, in the month of June, um, which is also ironically my coming out month, I came out on June 14th, 2010. I would like to just recognize all of the, the people who have paved a way for people like you and I, Brian, and also celebrate the wins that we've had lately while recognizing what might be ahead. Pride is a celebration and it is also a call to action. I want to thank Paul Butler and the I Am Here Collective. The link to their website is in the show notes. And honestly, anything they have would make a perfect gift to someone you love. And I also want to thank friend of the show, Eric Wilkerson, for coming back and sharing his heart and expertise. And lastly, yes, I want to thank you. Happy Pride and see you soon. Whoa, oh, oh.